Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Open in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 5. It's our last sermon in this series through 1 Peter. And um, I encourage you as we, we go through these books to do your own study on the side, obviously. Use commentaries, other books about these books, and most importantly, read your Bibles. Read through First Peter as we're going through it. Read through the next books as we go through them. And, and make notes and keep charts of how, how you're going through the books. It's, it's important to understand that as we do this, we're teaching ourselves how to read the Bible and how to understand the Bible. And so as we go through these books, you'll look back over the last year, we've been through Colossians and Judges, and we went through all 12 minor prophets, as you recall, in the fall. And now we're devoting our attention to First Peter. We're in Leviticus on Wednesday nights. Uh, this, these journeys through these books help us see how God put the Bible together. And as you study and read on your own, he will, as the song says, lead you down those uh, footsteps of Jesus as we follow him. Speaking of following Jesus, not this week, but next week, starting next Sunday, we'll begin a new series called uh, The Power and the Glory, but it will also be the beginning of what Christians have traditionally called Holy Week. Now, there's nothing specifically or specially holy about these days. We have just simply put them on our calendar as days to commemorate and to remember these important events in the life of the Lord, these events that really change the entire course of human history for all eternity. And starting next week with Palm Sunday, we'll have our regular morning worship service at 1030 in here. And then a special service on Maundy Thursday. And if you remember what Maundy means, or maybe you're still confused about it, we'll talk about that next Thursday night at 6 in the Fellowship Hall. Everything will be in the Fellowship Hall that Thursday night. Sign up for a dish to bring. We'll have our meal first and then go into our time of scripture reading and end with the Lord's Supper as we remember Jesus' final night there with his disciples in the upper room. Then on Good Friday, next Friday night at 6 p.m., we'll have a service right in here, right in the sanctuary. The choir will sing. We will read through the passion of the Lord from the Gospel of John, as we did last year, and we'll uh, turn our minds and our attentions to the cross before, of course, coming back on Easter Sunday at 1030 to celebrate the resurrection, as we do every Lord's Day. And the reason we have worship on Sunday is because this is the first day of the week in which Jesus rose from the dead. So we'll celebrate specially that Sunday for Easter, April 17th. All right, so put those on your calendar starting next uh, Saturday, next Sunday, all the way through Easter Sunday as we go through Holy Week. You can do anything for a little while. You can do anything for a little while. First thing that came to my mind when I said that phrase was mothers who endure the pain of childbirth knowing the joy that's coming. In fact, I remember when Anna was born at our hospital in Florida in the town we were in at that time, 
there in the labor and delivery room, there was uh, some wall art, just some, some letters on the wall that, that spoke something to the extent of after the pain, after the travail, then there's the joy. And I thought about that in the birth of our other two children, and maybe you remember the birth of your own children, the pain and the suffering, but then the joy that immediately flooded over you when that little one was brought into the world. I thought, in a little while, joy is coming. Maybe when you're driving to a destination, specifically maybe vacation, you're going to the beach or wherever around here you go to the, to the mountains, I think, not the beach, unless you drive to the beach, that's wonderful too. You endure traffic, you endure detours, stops, your children, you have to endure them in the car, right? Knowing that in a little while you will reach destination, be a hotel or a resort or wherever you're going for your vacation or camper, as it seems, and you'll be able to chill out, relax. You can do anything for a little while. When you have countdowns to vacations, when you have a goal in mind, something to shoot for, something to look forward to, you think, I can do anything until then because in a little while I know what is coming. Well, that's been Peter's message to us from the beginning, hasn't it? All the way from chapter 1 and those opening verses. He said, you are exiles. You are outcasts. You will experience suffering. You'll experience pain. And in all of that, Peter has in the last couple weeks reminded us what our duty is as Christians, to be kind, to do good deeds, to submit. And he's reminded us that although we are exiles, We are elect exiles. We are called, we are chosen from the beginning as God's holy chosen people. Citizens of another kingdom with a living hope and an inheritance that is there. And Peter has all the while been reminding us, though there's suffering now, though there are trials now, though there's pain now, in a little while, that which has been promised to you will come into full view. The faith will be made sight when we see Jesus. And Peter says, with that in view, live here now as holy people, as God's distinct people, as lights in this darkness, showing love to a world that only knows how to hate and submitting to one another in love. Peter says, keep your focus there. Put your gaze there. And he says, in fact, whether you're dealing with the state, the government, whether you're dealing with your jobs, your homes, your families, and especially in the local church, what did he say in chapter 5, verse 5? Clothe yourselves with humility because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And today as we close the book of 1 Peter, we see the last strains of that plea. How to live as elect exiles in this world that is not our home. How to live in this darkness now, knowing what will be in a little while. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 6 through the end. Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 
And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Number one today, the gift of humility. The gift of humility. We don't often think of humility or lowliness, as it would be literally translated, as a gift. To think of oneself as lowly, to be humble, to submit, we don't see that as much as a gift. To be, to be as Peter said, to, to submit to the state, to submit to your employer, to submit in your home, to submit and obey in your church, we'd think, is that a good thing? Humility, submission, subjugation, those are good gifts from God, really? Remember that Peter has first reminded us of the supreme example of this humility. And the supreme example of this very kind of humility, this lowliness in life and thought, was the Lord Jesus. Who Peter says in chapter 3 verse 18, also suffered. You hear why he says that? Jesus also suffered. You're going to suffer. You're going to experience pain and trials. But Jesus, who was Lord of everything, also suffered. See his humility and his lowliness there. So Peter first points us to that supreme example of Jesus' humility and lowliness. Peter has also reminded us, though, that this suffering of Christ was not the end for Christ. We know he rose from the dead victoriously. And after he suffered for sins, it says in chapter 3, verse 22, he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Yes, humiliation. Yes, death and suffering and pain. But it was followed by glory and exaltation and victory. And Peter, in showing us that example through Christ, has reminded us that if we are united with Christ by faith, we will suffer as he did. We are to embrace that suffering as he did. But his victory and his glory is also ours. And in verse 6, Peter begins to remind us of this one last time. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. We see that same pattern here, don't we? Submit, subjugate yourselves, humble yourselves to God. If you want God's blessing, you want God's grace, you want God's favor, Peter says in 5.5, submit yourself to him. You want to make God your enemy? Don't submit. Be proud and be arrogant. You want to know the grace and the mercy and the peace of God? Chapter 4, verse 19, entrust yourself to your faithful creator while doing good. Commit yourself to him. Throw yourself at his mercy and do his will. And as you submit to and obey and humble yourself before God, you are doing exactly what we sang about. You're following the footsteps of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, Philippians 2 verse 8, emptied himself, 
humbled himself to the point of death. But we know that wasn't the end for Jesus because just as he humbled himself, he was also exalted to victory. And in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, we read, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every tongue will confess in heaven, earth, under the earth, and every knee will bow, confessing that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was humbled. Jesus submitted. Jesus suffered. Jesus died. And now Jesus is exalted. And if you are in him, Peter says, you will be too. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God now, so that you may be exalted at the proper time. Now, when Christ was exalted, he was returning to the glory that he shared with the Father from all eternity. He was God from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And so when Jesus returns to glory, he's returning to his rightful place. He is resuming the glory and the honor that he had with the Father and the Holy Spirit from eternity past. When we are exalted, we are not exalted in that same way. We don't become gods. We certainly don't become one with God in that way. But because we're in Christ, we share in his glory and in his dominion and his victory, which belongs solely to him. We are simply brought in to share with it. We are raised up in him, raised up with him, saved by him, and we experience glory with him. And that's how, as Peter said in 1 Peter 1.4, we come to that inheritance that God is keeping for us that is unfading, imperishable, and undefiled. God is keeping the inheritance. God is keeping us. And if we're in Christ, we will be raised up in Christ in the end. As we continue to think about humility, we see that it is a good thing. It is a blessing. It's a means by which God raises us up in Christ. And there's another blessing here. Look in verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. As you submit to God's mighty hand, as you humble yourselves under his mighty hand, our wills will align with his will. As you further submit yourself and humble yourself to him, to his word, to his truth, To his spirit, your will will align with his. And Peter says you are then able to cast every care, every burden, every load, every anxiety upon him. You're able to then give it to his mighty hand. You know what pride does? Pride holds on. Pride won't let go. Pride suppresses. Pride hides. Pride stifles. But what does humility do? It's humility that lets go. It's humility that lays down. It's humility that reveals 
when we're experiencing this sort of arrogance and pride that won't let go and give things over to God into his mighty hand, we are showing what I would call a pretense of strength. It's pretending to be strong and it's boasting in your own strength and in your own ability to handle it. Isn't that how we do? I can do this, I can handle it. I don't need to share with anyone. I certainly don't need to complain to God. I can do this all on my own. Do you see the pride and the arrogance that's there that stifles and suppresses and holds on? But humility is not just a pretense of strength. It is true strength because you actually have to come to your senses and say, I can't do this by myself. I need my brothers and sisters in Christ and I need the spirit of God. True strength lets go and true strength lives by another's strength, namely God's. He is ready and willing today and able today to bear whatever you've come into this place with. But listen, you must let go. Like that friend who you love so much and simply want to help, but who simply won't let go and receive it. You know that person, you might be that person. We so often hold on to our burdens and our needs and our cares and our anxieties, thinking it is strength for us to bear them ourselves, when in fact it is nothing but selfish pride. When you don't want the help, when you refuse the help, listen, you cannot benefit from the help. What good is it to say that God is able and God is willing to bear your load if you won't give it to him? Pride and arrogance will weaken you and they will kill you because you will not take the grace that is available. Listen, this is true of salvation. That one of the hymns we sing, um, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy, says, If you dream of fitness, in other words, if you try to wait until you're able to come to Christ and you've cleaned yourself up enough to come to Jesus, if you think in your pride and arrogance that you can meet God's standards on your own and then I'll come to Jesus, the song says you will never come at all. Because the very point of salvation is understanding you have nothing to bring him, but you have everything to receive from him. And so if that is true in salvation, it is true for the rest of our Christian life. He is able, he's ready, and he's willing to bear the load, to bear the burden. But you must submit yourself to him, humble yourself under his hand, and let it go. And there you will find the God who cares for you. I love Peter's little play on words there. Cast your burdens and your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You have an invitation from the Father today to let go of whatever is burdening you today. Whether it's that monumental weight of sin and death that you need to repent and trust Jesus for salvation today, let go of that and trust him for salvation. Now, there's so many different, different scenarios in here that we could go through. I'm sure whether it's a family member or a loved one or a child or something at work or something in your own life, a sin, a temptation. I mean, the examples are endless. You know what it is and the Holy Spirit knows what it is today. Are you selfishly and pridefully and arrogantly holding on to it? 
When God is willing and able with arms open and hands stretched towards you saying, give it to me, just give it to me. Who needs to lay something down at the feet of Jesus today? Who needs to humble yourself under his mighty hand? Oh, and see the gift that is there for you. Trust him enough, listen, trust him enough to let go. And the suffering and the pain and the loss and all the downs of life, trust him enough to let go. Knowing that this present suffering will only last a little while. And the time is coming when you will be lifted up. Knowing that even in this suffering, God cares for you and provides grace for you for every trial. The blessing in your submission, the blessing in our exile here, the blessing in our persecution here, the blessing of humility is God's promise. This will only last a little while. And then, glory, life, joy, and peace. Let's put our focus there. Number two, watch out. There's a downside to waiting too. When you know that vacation is coming, when you know that trip is coming, seniors, as you know the end of this year is coming, you get what at least we used to call senioritis or you just stop caring about your grades and stop caring about everything you need to do to finish strong. Oh, this happens to all of us when the waiting and the patience can easily slip into laziness and apathy. And we say, yes, I know heaven is coming. Yes, I know glory is coming. This won't last forever. This world is not my home. So I'm just going to do nothing. It would be easy for us to view life and salvation and heaven this way, wouldn't it? This isn't my home anyway. Why bother? And so when it comes to life and work and family and church and suffering and pain and trials, we see those things, listen, and they become merely obstacles to heaven. If that's the goal and that's the joy and that's the glory and this is just a little while, why bother with life or family or Responsibilities are serving and certainly pain and trials. So what's produced in your life in that instance is not a life of good deeds, as Peter says, or kindness or love or mercy or grace. But what's produced in that kind of thinking is nothing but bitterness, apathy, laziness, and impatience. It's an old preacher joke to say that you can be so heavenly minded that you are of no earthly good or that you're so earthly minded that you're of no heavenly good when God has called us to be both heavenly minded and of earthly good. Peter warns us of spiritual apathy here in verse eight. Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter's call is not to sit back and relax and do nothing. Yes, glory is coming. Heaven is your home. This world is not your home. But Peter is far from saying, sit back and do nothing. In fact, he says, be sober-minded. It means to be alert, to be attentive, to be ready. He says, be watchful, awake, 
aware, looking around. Why? What's out there? What's out there that we need to watch out for? What's happening around us that we need to worry about? Well, Peter says, no big deal, just the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We're here in the wilderness on this journey to glory. We're elect exiles here on our journey and one needs their wits about them to be watchful, to be aware, to be looking, to be alert because there's danger. And Peter pictures the devil as a lion sneaking, lurking, prowling, pacing back and forth as he waits to see who the weakest link is to find his prey. When God confronted Cain in Genesis chapter 4, remember Cain, the older brother of, of Cain and Abel, he told him in Genesis chapter 4, you better be careful, Cain. Sin is crouching at the door. Be careful. Be watchful. It's after you. Through envy, through bitterness, through rage, the devil got a foothold into Cain's heart. And you see the result, death. The same way, watch out for the devil in your life. Watch, be alert, because as soon as you turn your back and stop looking, oh, that is when the devil takes advantage and sees his prey and pounces. How often do we let our guard down, giving Satan a wide open door of opportunity in our hearts and our lives leading to death? Peter warns us here, yes, our hope is in heaven. Yes, our home is not here, but there is work to do here. Salvation, listen to me, salvation is no invitation to laziness and spiritual apathy. I think in many of our misunderstandings about what we mean by eternal security, and maybe by the misuse of the phrase, once saved, always saved, we tend to view salvation as this thing that we did back then, and we check the box, and then we simply move on. And then if we're ever confronted with our sin, or convicted of something, by the church, by a friend, by a pastor, by our own heart of the Holy Spirit. We dismiss it. Why? Because after all, once saved, always saved. I'm good to go. Now, Peter would warn us of that kind of mentality here. Oh, Peter is confident in the, the security of the believer. Remember, it's God who is keeping us. But that is no invitation to sit back and to do nothing. In fact, I think these, these scriptures, Ephesians chapter 2 being one of them, is these two side by side just show this companionship between security and work. You know, Ephesians chapter 2, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. But then what comes up in Ephesians 2 verse 10? You're saved by grace through faith, not works. So no works, no, Paul says, verse 10, no works. You're not saved by the works, but you're saved to do good works. You're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, by the way, God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Philippians 2, verse 12 is one of those jarring passages. You work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
Verse 13, knowing that it is God who is at work in you, making you willing and able to obey him. So often we let our guard down and we just sit back with our hands behind our head and think, man, I'm glad I got saved when I was four and haven't done a thing about it since. Peter would say, oh, you need to be watchful. Be awake, be alert, because the devil wants you. Verse 9, Peter says, as you're watching, as you're being alert and watching out for Satan, resist him firm in your faith. This is active. Another active command, be watchful and resist. Now, we think of resist as just sort of passive resistance, don't we? That we're, we're resistant to temptation when it comes. We're resistant to Satan when he comes. Peter says, no, no, no. This is not waiting for Satan to bring the fight to you. But this is taking the fight to him. And Peter says, you need to go on the offensive now. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Peter makes this promise to Peter of all people. Maybe he has this in mind. That's interesting to think about. You, Peter, rock on this rock. I'll build my church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Have you ever thought to, to look at that passage and understand that gates are not an offensive weapon? It's not as if hell is marching around on the church with gates as sort of their weapons. No, the picture is not that hell is on the defensive or the offensive. The picture here is that hell is on the defensive and we are on the offensive. That we are storming, as it were, the gates of hell with Christ as our captain, his victory as our banner, his armor on, and we charge, we advance. And this is crucial to your striving for holiness. Not simply waiting on temptation to knock and then you hope that you can resist. Not simply waiting on Satan to pounce and praying that you can defeat him. This is a preemptive strike against Satan and sin and temptation by the power of God, by the power of the Spirit, preaching the gospel to yourself every day, you going on the offensive against sin and temptation in your heart and your life. And that last part is so crucial. This is by the power of God. That's why Peter says, as you resist him, you must be firm in your faith. What faith? Faith is in just my wishful thinking. Faith is in you just got to have faith. You just got to believe in yourself or whatever. No, not those worldly, stupid notions of what faith is. But the definite article, the faith. Firm in the faith. This denotes not just our personal trust and belief in Christ, but the substance of it. Holding fast to what it is we believe about Jesus. Oh, this is why doctrine, theology, teaching, preaching, Bible study is so important to you as a Christian because they're your foundation. So many times preachers and teachers and churches and denominations try to go for the pillars and the walls of the house first, how to live, how to act, what not to do, how to serve in the church, when there's never been a proper foundation laid. And if there's no foundation of truth and sound doctrine and biblical theology there to undergird the building of the house, the house is just going to crumble. 
no matter how hard you try. So Peter says, why try to resist the devil in your own strength? You must first plant yourself firmly in the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. There's no foundation to stand against Satan if you're not planted in the truth. In fact, if you remember when Jesus was fighting temptation in Matthew chapter four, how did Jesus fight temptation? Three times he was confronted by Satan and three times he responds, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. It was Jesus' weapon. Why wouldn't it be ours? In fact, Paul says it is in Ephesians chapter six, verse 17. As we put on the armor of God, what is our sword and our weapon? What is the sword of the spirit except the word of God, the truth of God? So watch, stand, fight, rooted unswervingly in the gospel, and then seek out and take advantages of opportunities to take the fight to Satan. And it's interesting to note that he says the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Remember that you're not alone in this. You're in good company in this fight. You have your family of God here, brothers and sisters in Christ in the same fight right here in your Sunday school class, in your small group, brothers and sisters in the same fight all over the world from all time, from all the centuries past, our brothers and sisters who have fought the fight, who have run the race. Now, this is why church history is so important. Theology is that foundation. Church history helps us to see that cloud of witnesses that is around us as we learn people and times and places and events that suffered in the same ways that we did, maybe less than we do, and certainly more than we do. And we see their faith and their action and their example, and we see something to follow. We come to an understanding that this is bigger than me. And this is bigger than you and that you're not alone in this. Read and learn of how others have stood and are standing firm against Satan and then you follow that. See God's power and God's grace in the lives of others and know that he cares for you too. You might have heard the phrase, let go and let God. And and that might be applicable in some different instances. In fact, earlier we talked about letting go and giving it to God. But if it comes to you thinking that you can just sit back and be spiritually lazy and spiritually apathetic and take advantage of God's grace in that way, J.I. Packer said the motto for the Christian should never be to let go and let God, but to trust God and to get going. Trust God and get going. Get fighting. Watch out. Stand firm and get in the fight. Why? Number three, just a little while longer. You can do anything for a little while. With your eyes on a prize, a goal, a promise, let alone a hope that Peter says is unfading and imperishable, that's where Peter has turned our focus from the beginning, and that's where he leaves us now. Look at verse 10. Yes, a promise is coming, but he says, after you suffered a little while, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
In chapter 4, verse 12, he said, don't be surprised when these trials come. Submit to God, fight the devil, and know this, it will only last a little while. Then what? Peter says, then the God on whom you fixed your gaze and your focus, the God who is keeping you, the God who gave you this inheritance, he says, then that God whom you've been casting your cares upon, he will restore, he will confirm, he will strengthen and establish you. This perfectly pictures this idea of someone building a building and building a firm foundation that he himself will establish you and build you and make you secure. Not just some emotional, circumstantial turnaround, oh, that God will restore you, that's included there too, but a permanent stability that God himself will build you back up in his time and in his way. When you think about it, this is everything that an exile is not. An exile is moving Unstable, temporary, insecure, unsettled. And everything that we long for in this exile will one day be ours. And rather than moving and changing and decay and death, God will fix and root and establish and secure. How? Through the eternal glory that is ours in Christ. Verse 11, who is worthy of dominion forever and ever. Dominion, you know what that word means? It means lordship. Jesus has the lordship forever. And since he is Lord and he is unstoppable and you are his and you are in him, nothing in all creation can touch you because you are are his and he is Lord. Oh, there is rest in that this morning. In these shifting, sinking sands of exile, you can't find any footing, security, nothing to hold on to. Here is your God. Here is your Lord and your Savior who has won the victory over all of it and who now holds you and cares for you. And who now promises you just a little while longer. You can do anything for a little while. So today, hang on. Fight. Live for Jesus. And look for Jesus. Knowing that his dominion and glory are forever and ever. And knowing that if you're in him, you, as the song says, his glory forever I'll share. Fourth and finally, these closing words. We see these closing greetings from Sylvanus and Mark and other believers, but we have something very interesting in verse 13. She who is at Babylon. Now, by Peter's time, there is no more Babylon. And many scholars believe that both Peter and John in the book of Revelation are using the term Babylon to refer to Rome. So maybe Peter was writing from Rome, which they considered this kind of modern-day Babylon. And if you think about the picture he's evoking, what is it? 
Think of the minor prophets and Judah going in exile to Babylon. And Peter says, look, your brothers and sisters from Babylon, we're in exile with you, just like Judah was in exile. We're in this with you. We're in the fight with you. Think about those people from Judah who were in Babylon, far from their home, far from the temple, far from the promises. And maybe they thought to themselves, those 70 years in exile, will God ever restore us? Is God faithful? Will he keep his promises or not? Well, surely those early Jews thought that to themselves in Babylon. How about these first century Christians in Peter's day? You think they might have been wondering the same thing? In their trials, their burdens, their pains, their sorrows. God, where are you? Will you restore me? Are you faithful? Will you keep your promises? Maybe this morning you're asking the same questions. So much hurt, loss and pain and suffering, and you feel the weight of this exile. You feel the weight of this burden, and you wonder, is God good? Is God faithful? Is he able to keep his promises here in Babylon? I want to encourage you this morning that no matter what your details are, you have the promise of God too. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And so if you're in him by faith, no matter your particular circumstances and trials and pains, you share in this promise because you are in him. Is God good? Is God faithful? Is he able? Peter says you have a living hope in him because he was raised from the dead. And that's why he's able to conclude this letter in verse 14. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. As we close this letter, maybe that should suffice for us today. Whatever your pain and sorrow and trials and loss today, and there's much on the death of loved ones recently, the past year, the leftovers of the pandemic or sickness or whatever it is in your life, let this suffice for you today. Peace. God's peace. I don't have to know all the ins and outs of your situations, your trials and your sufferings. I don't have to know that. But God does. And you can leave it with him. I don't have to know all the answers for your trial and your sufferings. Nor can I always tell you the reason or the outcome. But I do know what Peter offers us here by the Holy Spirit. I do know what Christ offers us here. And that is peace. For every trial, for every burden, for every pain, for every loss. In this exile you can know Peace. Peace knowing this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And in a little while, I'm going home. I'm bound for the promised land. Oh, who will come and go with me? Let's pray. 
Thank you, Father, that in Jesus we have a friend who will bear all of our burdens. We have a friend who has borne all of our sin and our wickedness on himself. We have a friend to whom we can go in prayer and lay our anxieties and our burdens, our loss, our grief. Oh God, this morning we just simply ask that you would help us to let go of it. That whatever this time in this exile in our own lives has presented to us, we can leave it with you. We can cast it upon you. You said, because you care for us. Help us to do that today with our eyes fixed on the glory that is coming in Christ. With our focus firmly fixed on you and our eternal home, our inheritance, our living hope. Turn our attention there this morning and help us to leave the rest with you. God, for all the pain and all the hurt and all the sorrow in this room today, I ask for your peace. We speak your peace into that storm. God, come and encourage us by your Holy Spirit. Turn our attention to the friendly face of the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we ask, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.